beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes things that are really big look really small to us. You think of the Rocky Mountains from, from here in Monarch, they look pretty small. We, can, we stood outside and we looked at them, we could, we could cover them with our hands. You can think of the stars and the planets the other day. So, uh, somebody pointed out to me the, the, that that's, you can, we can see Saturn right now. And if you look through the binoculars, it, looks, it just looks like a small star without the binoculars or a telescope. But if you look through the binoculars, you can even, if it's a good pair of binoculars, you can even see just barely the rings. You can see that it's not a, a perfect circle. There's, it's a bit of an oblong shape. And so it enlarges it. Uh, to us and helps us to see something, even though it's not nearly as, as big as it actually is, it helps us to see something of how big it is. But, but without them, uh, without a binoculars, without a telescope, the, the, the stars and the planets, they, they can seem so tiny to us, and when in reality they are very big and, and they are even humongous. But we don't normally... Think of that. We, we just see little pinpricks in the sky. Or we can think of, of mountains and stars and planets as smaller than they really are, but, but we can also think of God that way. We can think of God as smaller than He is. I don't mean physically, of course. But in terms of His importance, in terms of His significance, in terms of His Greatness. We can think or live as if he's relatively small. In fact, many people think and live as if God doesn't even exist. God is in none of their thoughts. To many people, there is no such thing as God, or at least not the God of the Bible. That's true of many people in the world, but who, who might never set foot in a church, but it can also be true of people in the church. Perhaps it's true of you. You come to church, but if truth be told, you really think and you really live as if God doesn't exist or as if he's not that important, as if he's small enough to be safely ignored. But even if that's not you, even if God is in your thoughts, it could be that you struggle to really grasp his greatness, his significance. And, and even believers can struggle with this. We can sometimes think of God as smaller than he is. Isn't that sometimes why we neglect to pray? Isn't that sometimes why we're afraid of people? Isn't that why we sometimes struggle to give our trials and our troubles over to God? Isn't that why we give in sometimes to temptation and sin and unbelief and despair? Isn't that the reason sometimes why we struggle to rejoice in God? Isn't it because everything else seems so big and God seems so small? But the reality is that God isn't small at all. He's bigger and he's greater than all those things. The problem is that we have a hard time seeing it. We need to have our eyes opened. And if, if there's one thing that can help us to do that, there are many things really, but, but one thing especially is, is the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ, you see, magnifies and glorifies 
God. It's sort of like binoculars or a telescope that helps us to see how big, how, insigni- how, how, how significant, how all-important He is. And that's really the lesson we hope to see from our text this morning in Luke 1, 46 to 56. You see, Mary in these verses, she magnifies God for Christ's coming. Elizabeth, filled with the Spirit, has just confirmed the gospel message for her. The gospel message that Gabriel had announced to Mary only a short time before. What was that message? It was the message that she would be the mother of God's own son. The one who would be the Christ, the long-promised, anointed Savior King, whose kingdom would have no end. And what does Mary do? How does she respond? She responds by bursting out in praise of God. Even though her son has, has been barely conceived, much less been born yet. She magnifies God in faith, you see. Look at verses 46 and 47. And Mary said, My soul does magnify the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. In faith, Mary overflows with with joyful and wholehearted praise of God. That's what the coming of Christ calls us to do. Because it shows us how great, how significant God really is. It shows us that He not only exists, but He is much bigger and He is much more important than we often realize. The coming of Christ glorifies, magnifies God and calls us to joyfully and wholeheartedly praise Him in faith. And that's what we hope to see with God's help. As we consider this passage, Luke 1, verses 46 to 56, under the theme, magnifying God with Mary for Christ's coming. We'll see, first of all, what favor he shows, and secondly, how mightily he works, and thirdly, how committed he is. The first thing Mary magnifies God for is the favor he shows. We, We see this especially in verses 48 through 50. Mary's just declared that her soul magnifies the Lord. Her spirit has rejoiced in God, her Savior. And in verse 48, she starts to explain why. For, she says, or because he has regarded the lowest state of his handmaid. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty has done to me or for me great things. And holy is his name, and his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. What is Mary doing here? She's magnifying God for his favor. He, her Savior, has regarded. He has noticed. He has looked with kindness on her, on her low estate. And he has done great things for her. Of course, Mary is speaking especially of God's particular favor toward her and making her the mother of his son. That's clear from her statement that all generations shall call or consider her blessed as the mother of God's son. That was unique to her, but but what she says about God's favor to her is not unique to her. God's favor to Mary is typical. It's representative. 
of his favor in the salvation of sinners, in his salvation of, of sinners through Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ glorifies God by declaring what favor he shows. Now I want to just notice two things from, from Mary's words. The favor he shows, first of all, is undeserved. Look again what Mary says in verse 48. She says, he has regarded the what? He has regarded the lowly state, the low estate of his maidservant. And what does Mary mean by that? What is she saying? She's saying, she's confessing that there was nothing about her that earned her the favor of God. There was nothing about her that made her, uh, made, 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 made her worthy of God choosing her to be the mother of his son. She could not boast or say that, that there was something she had or something she did that made her deserving of that honor. That she, she could not say that she was somehow better than, than somebody else. No, there was nothing about Mary that could explain God's favor towards her. As commentator Phil Riken puts it, she was a nobody from nowhere. And she was a sinner. That's why she confessed God as her Savior. Anything she did for God was simply what she owed him in the first place. She was his maidservant, and yet God gave her the unique and the lasting honor of being the mother of his son. What favor God shows. It's so undeserved. That's what the coming of Christ declares. It declares that God freely shows favor to the unworthy and to the undeserving. That's the kind of favor that he showed toward Mary. And she magnifies, she praises and rejoices in God for that. And so should we. So should we. Or not. You see, the reality is that spiritually in and of ourselves, we are all in Mary's condition. We too are in a lowly state by nature, not necessarily financially, not necessarily socially, although we might be that too, but certainly spiritually. Every single human being ever since our fall into sin in the garden is in a lowly state in and of themselves, spiritually speaking. We are a fallen people. We've lost the favor of God because of sin, and we are completely unable to earn it back. That's our greatest problem. That's your and my greatest problem. Whether you realize it or not. Your greatest problem is not your difficult circumstances. Your greatest problem is not the uncertainty of the future. Your greatest problem, our greatest problem is not the war in the Middle East. It's not the rising prices of food. It's not relationship challenges. It's not our physical weaknesses. These are all real problems for sure. And I'm not making light of them or saying that we should ignore them. They can be and they can feel, they, they can be and they can feel overwhelming. But they're not our greatest problem. 
Our greatest problem, my greatest problem, and your greatest problem is that not any of those things. It's that you and I, left to ourselves because of our sins and because of our sinfulness, are outside of the favor and the blessing of God. And instead, we are under His holy wrath and His righteous anger, His fierce anger. And in and of ourselves, we have no hope of escape. It's like being in a miry pit. You think of Joseph or, 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 or Jeremiah, how they were thrown into a, a pit that they couldn't get out of by themselves. That's where we are by nature. That's our condition spiritually. That's true of every single one of us left to ourselves. It's true of you children. It's true of you young people. It's true of you young adults. It's true of you older ones. It's true of you who are in your senior years. Do you know that about yourself? Not just because you read it in the Bible or hear it from the pulpit or in Sunday school or in catechism class, but because you personally feel it in your heart. Have you felt something of your sinfulness and your utter depravity before God? Your utter inability to truly love Him with all of your heart and soul and strength and mind? And your utter inability to love your neighbor, to truly love your neighbor as yourself? Have you been made personally conscious like Mary was of your own lowly state? Could it be could it be that the reason you don't, your soul doesn't magnify the Lord or, or, or doesn't rejoice in God? Could it be that it's because you've never come to realize your own lowliness? But maybe you say, yes, I have. I know something of my sin. I know something of my miserable condition before God. I know that's my greatest problem, but I don't know what to do about it. I don't know where to go with it. I can't go to God. I can't go to God. He's holy and He's righteous and I'm sinful and I'm unworthy. He won't help me. But can't you? Won't He? It's true, you're in a lowly state. But this is the amazing, this is the wonderful truth that comes out of our text. God shows favor to the undeserving, to the unworthy. That's what the coming of Christ declares. That's why Mary magnifies God, because he regarded her low estate. He showed favor to her. He shows favor to the unworthy. You know, that's really the only thing that explains the coming of Christ at all. Well, then don't think so little of God. Go to Him in faith. Cry out to Him with your sin, with your misery, with all of your unworthiness. And He will regard your low estate. He hears the cries of the poor and needy. He will show favor to you. 
and he will help you and he will save you from your sins and reconcile you to himself through faith in Christ, unworthy and undeserving as you are in and of yourself. That's why he sent his son. That's why Christ came. What favor God shows. It's so undeserved. When God sent his son to us, he chose Mary to be the mother of his son to make that clear. Listen to how Martin Luther paraphrases what Mary is saying. He says it this way, speaking as if it was Mary speaking. God has looked upon me poor, despised, lowly made, where he could easily have found a rich, high, noble, mighty queen, a daughter of princes and great lords. So he might have found Annas' and Caiaphas' daughter, who were the highest in the country. But upon me, he cast his pure, his good eyes, and used such a lowly, despised maid that no one, here's the purpose, that no one should boast before him that he would have been or was worthy. The favor God shows is undeserved. It's always, it's always undeserved. Dear Christian, think of the favor that God has shown you. That he has shown his favor to you in saving you. It's so undeserved. How good it is to remember that. When you're tempted to despair on the one hand. Or pride on the other. To remember that his favor toward you. In saving you. And in keeping you saved. It's so undeserved. Why are you a Christian? Because he, he has regarded your low estate. Isn't that a reason for your soul to magnify God and rejoice in him as your savior? And yet sometimes we can struggle to do that, can't we? We can tend to think of God's favor as small, as, as something limited in size or limited in power, but it's not. The coming of Christ declares that the favor God shows in Christ is not only undeserved, it's also, it's also so abundant. What abundant favor he showed to Mary, if you look at what she says in, in verse 49, for he that is, mighty, that is mighty has done to me or done for me great things. Not one great thing, but Plural, great things, more than one. And, and they're great things. And, and holy is his name. God, the mighty one, had not only regarded her low estate, but he had also done great things for her. He had become her savior. He had chosen Mary to be the mother of his son. He had sent Gabriel to give her the news. He had caused Mary, by the power of his Holy Spirit, to actually conceive his son. And he had confirmed the wonderful news to her through Elizabeth. God had done so much for Mary. Exceeding abundantly above all that she could ask or think. And Mary's just overwhelmed. She's overwhelmed by the favor of God to her. Not just because it's so undeserved, but because it's so abundant. Her cup just runs over with the favor of God. And so she humbles in humility. She magnifies God. And again, shouldn't we too, congregation? 
Shouldn't we joyfully and wholeheartedly praise God with Mary for Christ's coming? In light of the abundance of his favor that it reveals and that it secures. You see, God wasn't just doing great things for Mary by causing Christ to be miraculously conceived in her womb. He was doing great things for all his people by causing, for all who trust in him. He was accomplishing their salvation. He was securing for them, to use the words of Ephesians 1, every spiritual blessing that is in Christ. The favor he shows to those who fear him. To those whose hearts by grace have been humbled before his greatness. And who seek to walk in his ways. Dependence upon him is abundant favor. It never runs out. It never runs out. Mary herself says in verse 50, his mercy. His mercy is on them that fear him. From generation to generation. What favor, what favor God shows with the coming of Christ. How can we not exclaim with Mary, holy, infinitely exalted is his name. But Christ's coming not only declares what favor God shows, it also declares how mightily he works. And Mary highlights that in verses 51 through 53. Look, look there with me at those verses. She says, she says there that he has showed strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. What's Mary doing here in these verses? Well, she's magnifying God again for how mightily he works. He has showed strength with his arm. God's arm is a symbol of strength in the Bible, of his power. And we can identify with that, can't we? I mean, how do we measure someone's strength? We look at their arms. We look at their biceps. How big are they? How muscular are they? And maybe some of you, you young men, you, you, you like to show off your biceps. You work hard to, to, to increase the strength of your arms. You do push-ups and you lift weights and you do all kinds of things. But the point is, God's arm is, it refers to his power. And so when Mary speaks of him showing strength with his arm, she's speaking about how mightily he works. That's what the coming of Christ declares and displays. But what does, what does Mary mean when she says that? When she says that, she, that he has showed strength with his arm? Well, she explains really in the rest of these verses, doesn't she? She unfolds God's display of strength. In detail. For one thing, she says, he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. What a picture that is. It's a picture of destruction. You think of a glass, a glass or, 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 a, or a plate, 
when it gets dropped on, on the floor and it smashes and the pieces fly everywhere. Mary's saying that's what God has done to those who are proud in their own imaginations, those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts, those who are rebellious against God. And he did that over and over again in the Old Testament. And perhaps Mary was thinking of that too. She sang this, this song. You think of Babel. Think of Babel, how the people proudly thought they could ignore God's command to spread over the earth. And they even built a tower for themselves to make a name for themselves, a sign of the rebellion, of the proud pride and their opposition against God. But God scattered them, didn't he? He came down and he confused their language and he dispersed them. Or you can think of how God scattered the Philistines on that day when, when David slew Goliath, how they ran for their lives. <coughs> when Goliath was killed. Or you can think of Israel, even God's covenant people. How God scattered them among the nations because of their proud rebellion against Him. And the coming of Christ, you see, is just another example and really the greatest, uh, greatest example of Him doing that. Of scattering the proud and the imagination of their hearts the rebellious, the enemies of God. Yes, including also his great enemy, the devil, Satan. How often, how often Satan proudly tried to keep this very thing from happening. You know, that's what the whole story of, of Haman's plot to kill the Jews was all about. But now Christ has come. And God has scattered Satan who so proudly tried to stop him from accomplishing his plan. I say, isn't that a reason? To magnify God with Mary. Not only that, though. Mary, Mary says that God has also put down the mighty from their seats. And the picture here is of, is of God. The word put down is, is really not strong enough. It's a, it's, it's a picture of God tearing down or throwing down rulers from their thrones. And again, God did that over and over again. You can just think of a proud King Nebuchadnezzar. How God tore him down, threw him down from his throne and he became like an animal until he knew and he confessed that heaven rules. God rules. And God did the same thing. God did the same thing with proud King Belshazzar. He sent the Medes and the Persians and tore Belshazzar down from his throne. But again, with the coming of Christ, he has torn a far mightier ruler off his throne. He has torn Satan himself off. Oh yes, that wouldn't be fully fulfilled until his death, Christ's death and resurrection. That's when Satan, as the ruler of this world, was cast out. But Christ's conception was the beginning, the beginning and the guarantee of that. God has put him down, put Satan down from his throne so that people like you and like me might be freed from the power of Satan, from the power of darkness and be delivered and brought into the kingdom of Christ. Without the coming of Christ, congregation, there, is, there would be no church here. We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be worshiping God. Mary, Mary understood something of what the coming of Christ was all about. It was about God setting up his kingdom 
the kingdom of his son, a kingdom that would have no end. That's what Gabriel himself had told her. And that's why she says this. And that's why she magnifies the Lord and rejoices in God. <coughs> and that's also why we should magnify God with Mary for Christ's coming. We have even more reason than Mary. Because we know what happened. We know that Christ died. And that he rose again from the dead, triumphing over sin and over Satan and over the power of evil and over death. But then how much more, how much more should we not humble ourselves and magnify God for the coming of Christ? How that should enable us and strengthen us in our fight against sin. How that should give us hope when we've fallen into sin and we can't we, we don't know how to get out. Are you magnifying God with Mary? How mightily, how mightily he has worked. How foolish it is in light of that. How foolish, how unsafe it is to continue in proud rebellion against God. But he's not only scattered the proud and put down the mighty from their seats, he's also exalted them who are of low degree, Mary says. He has lifted up the humble. Mary had experienced that, hadn't she? She was not great in the eyes of the world and she knew in her heart how unworthy she was also before God, but God had lifted her up. He had become her savior. He had saved her from her sins. And on top of that, he had made her the mother of his son. What a demonstration of the power of God. And what an encouragement to us that should be to humble ourselves before God, to confess and to repent of our sin, and to trust in his promise that he will also lift us up, that he will save us. He is able. He is able no matter how unworthy, no matter how lowly we have, how low we've come. What an encouragement. What an encouragement also to humbly commit all of our troubles and all of our trials and all of our problems and struggles of life into his hands. Instead of trying to fix them up ourselves, God has exalted them of low degree. How mightily he works. Yes, with the coming of Christ, he has also filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away, he has sent empty away. What's Mary saying here? She's saying that with the coming of Christ, congregation, God has provided a full, a full and all sufficient salvation for all those who seek it. Those who trust in themselves, those who are rich, who think they don't need Christ, he has rejected. But for all those who look outside of themselves, he has provided a full salvation in Jesus Christ. Oh, again, what a reason to embrace Christ and by faith and to cling to him. In him, God gives us <coughs> full salvation. He fully satisfies our every need. Oh, let us trust him then. 
And having trusted him, let us also magnify him with Mary for his coming. How mightily God works. But maybe you still think, but can I really trust him? Well, that brings us briefly to our third point, how committed God is. We look here at verses 54 and 55, where Mary says these words, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. In other words, you see congregation Mary's magnifying God for Christ's coming because it declares, it reveals God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. It tells us not only what favor he shows and how mightily he works, but how committed he is. He's fully committed. <laughs> He's fully committed to his promises. You see, the coming of Christ is nothing less than the fulfillment of God's promised help to Israel. Mary says it's God's helping his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abram and to his seed. In other words, the coming of Christ, what was it about? It was about God fulfilling his promise to Israel of his mercy, of his love and of his help to those who are in misery because of their sin and their guilt. God had promised that to Israel. Already when he made a covenant with Abraham, when he promised to be his God and the God of his seed after him, and that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That, that's a promise referring to the coming of Christ, in whom there would be mercy for sinners. And he had repeated that promise and, and revealed that promise, the details of that promise more and more as the years went by. And he did that. He did that despite Israel's sins despite Israel's stubbornness, despite their being so often rebellious and stiff-necked. But it had been nearly 2,000 years since God had made that promise to Abraham. It might have seemed as if he had forgotten. But he hadn't. The coming of Christ proved that. It showed that God is fully committed to his gospel promises. Isn't that good news? Isn't that what we need? Don't we need mercy? I need it. You need it. And God has it. And God shows it. In Christ. He's fully committed. And he's forever committed. He's eternally committed. And so the coming of Christ declares it. Declares that he's committed. The last word in verse 55 forever forever mercy forever because Christ's kingdom shall have no end what hope that gives us or not that's why we can be assured of salvation because God is fully and eternally committed to his promises that's that's what the coming of Christ declares. So let us magnify God with Mary for Christ's coming because of what favor he shows and how mightily he works and how committed he is. But of course, we can only do that in one way, can't we? We can only do that when we, like Mary, have first responded to the gospel and to Christ's coming in faith. 
that how you've responded? If you haven't, and if you continue that way, and you need to know that your end will be the end of the proud and the mighty and the rich that Mary speaks of in our text, God will scatter you. He will put you down. And he will send you away empty. Don't refuse to come to Christ. But come with all of your sin, with all of your unworthiness. Come looking to him and he will exalt you. He will save you. He will pour out his favor upon you and he will bring you all the way to glory because he's fully and forever committed. Well, let us trust him and let us magnify him because he is worthy. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, what a great and glorious God you are. We give thanks, O Lord, for the coming of Christ. And we praise your name for how it reveals and declares and secures amazing grace. How it shows, O oh Lord, your grace. How it shows your power. How it shows your faithfulness. It's not about us. It's all about you. Help us, O oh Lord, to see that. To take our eyes off the things of this life, the things of this world that are passing away. And to set them on Christ that we might see how great and how glorious you are. We pray this in Jesus' name, asking for a blessing on our fellowship and also on the Sunday school and catechism classes. Help the teachers and help the children. Would you teach them, O oh Lord, and give them hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing in Thanksgiving, Psalter 297. 297, all the verses.
doxology will be Psalter 424, verse 4. Receive now the blessing of the Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.